0: You are now listening to the September 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings.
1: Hello, heart and soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Rehoboam reigned over Judah in the south for 17 years. When he was laid to rest, his son Abijah followed him as the next king. Today, we'll share the stories surrounding Abijah as recorded in 1 Kings 15, verses 1-8, to and in 2 Chronicles 13. Verses 1 to chapter 4, verse 1. Abijah was born to Rehoboam and Maacah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. An interesting aspect of his lineage comes through his mother's side. David's son, Absalom, had a daughter named Tamar. Tamar married Uriel of Gibeah and had a daughter. That daughter was the wife of Rehoboam and Abijah's mother, Maacah. She is called different names in different parts of the Bible. For instance, in 1 Kings, she is called Maacah, and in 2 Chronicles, she is called Micaiah. According to biblical scholars, these are two same names pronounced differently. When he was born, he was given the name Abijah, which meant, the Lord is my father. In 2 Chronicles chapter 11 verses 21 and 22, we are told that Rehoboam set apart Abijah as head and leader among his brothers. Such an act would have clearly demonstrated King Rehoboam's intention to have Abijah succeed him as king. The scripture tells us that this is because Rehoboam loved Maacah more than all his other wives and concubines then what kind of king do you think abijah was the book of first kings and the book of second chronicle gives us a glimpse of abijah as a king whether he was a good king or a bad king interestingly the accounts from these two books are different first in first kings chapter 15 verse 3 it says he walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. Here it appears that he did not follow and obey God. Now if we turn to Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 18, it says, "Thus the sons of Israel were subdued at that time, and the sons of Judah conquered because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. Here, Judah was being ruled by Abijah, and the word Judah basically refers to Abijah. In that regard, the scripture portrays him favorably as a king who relied on God. Then why is the same king portrayed differently in the book of 1 Kings versus the book of 2 Chronicles? How can we reconcile the discrepancy? Here are what the theologians say. First, the book of 1 Kings is written from the prophet's point of view. The prophet at the time focused on the idol-worshipping sin of Israel. On the other hand, the book of 2 Chronicles were written from the priest's point of view. Priests worked to intercede between God and men, and they focused on repentance, forgiveness, and God's healing. In the prophet's point of view, Abijah was seen as a king whose heart was not devoted to God completely because he did not follow God's commandments and committed the sin of worshiping idols. But in the priest's point of view, Abijah was a king who depended on God, who repented and was forgiven of his sins at least on one occasion that the book of Second Chronicles referred to. If you think about it, maybe these two assessments are not so contradictory we all see in ourselves how we also engage in both types of behaviors. Often we fail God, but at least on occasion we get it right and come before the Lord with a repenting heart. Here are the details when Abijah got it right before the Lord God. Abijah became king over Judah in the 18th year of King Jeroboam in Israel and had reigned for three years in Jerusalem. Abijah's war with Jeroboam in Israel did not cease, just as his father Rehoboam's war against Jeroboam did not cease in all the days of his life. 2 Chronicles tells a story of a big battle between Abijah and Jeroboam. There, Abijah is portrayed as a king who depended on God as he faced this battle. Both Abijah and Jeroboam knew the battle between them was inevitable. Abijah had 400,000 soldiers, while Jeroboam amassed 800,000, twice as many soldiers as Abijah's. Abijah stood on Mount Zemarim, which is in the hill country of Ephraim about four miles to the north. He rebuked Jeroboam and Israel, reminding them of the covenant of salt. Salt was valued highly at the time and it symbolized something that does not change in its quality it symbolized the covenant with god second chronicles chapter 13 verses 4 through 12 tells us how abijah shouts about israel's treason in worshiping idols and he warned them not to fight against the lord god here is a part of what abijah said in second chronicles chapter 13 verse 12 now behold God is with us at our head, and his priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. But Jeroboam did not take heed. He neither became fearful of God nor repented before God, despite hearing Abijah's rebuke. Rather, Jeroboam, set an ambush to come from the rear so that Israel was facing off Judah in the front while the ambush was being placed behind them. By the time Abijah and his soldiers realized they were surrounded by Jeroboam's force in the front and the back, their hearts sank. They saw on Jeroboam's side twice as many soldiers. In desperation, they cried to the Lord. They instinctively knew They would lose the battle against Israel simply because they were badly outnumbered. They confessed that the battle was in God's hands and ultimately the battle was not fought by the swords and spears. When the priests blew the trumpets, the soldiers of Judah raised a war cry. Then God struck Jeroboam and all Israel in the sight of Abijah and all Judah. Eventually, 500,000 soldiers of Israel fell in the battle, and the rest of Jeroboam's soldiers fled. Abijah pursued Jeroboam, and he captured many cities from Jeroboam. God gave Israel into the hands of Abijah and Judah, because Abijah and the sons of Judah depended on God as their ancestors did, and were able to win the battle when in fact the odds were against them. Jeroboam did not recover from this defeat. God struck him and he died. Abijah was able to subdue Israel because he relied on God. But why does 1 Kings assess Abijah as an evil king? When we look at the Bible, there is no record of Abijah being a king who relied on and consistently obeyed God other than this battle on the third year of his reign that we covered earlier. Also, as mentioned in 1 Kings 15, verse 3, he was a king who committed all the sins his father had committed before him and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord God, unlike the heart of his forefather David. Abijah was a king who was not faithful in the sight of God. He was able to win a battle against Israel by relying on God at that point in time But eventually he committed evil, just like his father Rehoboam did. He sinned against God, but despite his evil ways, God showed Abijah mercy because of the promise he had made with David. The biblical record shows that God raised Abijah as king. In the end, God had him sleep with his ancestors because of the promise he made with David, who did right in God's eyes always obeying his command. Even though King Abijah failed God, it was God who kept his promise of making David's sons kings after him. We will continue with the story of Kings next time.
2: all I will do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the battle between. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
3: Today, God is going to speak to us about how to experience these things. And what do we do in order to step into the joy and gentleness and peace he's designed for us. So, Philippians chapter four, let's say it out loud together. We're gonna to read the first eight verses right now. So here we go, Philippians 4.1 through Philippians 4.8. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, there is anything that is worthy of praise. Think about these things. So we have this call, this really command from God to rejoice always, like in any circumstance. Remember, Paul is writing these words from prison. Where he's confined to a cell because he was proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God's love in Jesus. And he says, rejoice always. So this is not like a flippant, happy-go-lucky approach to life that never experiences suffering and pain. This is a kind of life that experiences joy in the middle of suffering and pain. And just in case we didn't catch it the first time, he says it again, I, say rejoice one more time then he says let your reasonableness so or gentleness be known to everyone so there's a way to be gentle even in the face of injustice that paul is experiencing and then he says do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be known to God. And here it is, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What a great phrase. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Like, who doesn't want that? Like, peace, calm, quiet, stillness, serenity that surpasses all understanding in a world that is constantly spinning. So how do we get that? And that leads to verse Eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So let's make the connection here. And this is the main truth God is showing us today. It is a totally life-transforming truth. I would encourage you to write it down if you are able to. So here it is, this truth, the battle for joy, gentleness, and peace in your life begins in your mind so the battle I'm using battle language here because let's be honest with each other like joy gentleness and peace don't come naturally or easily you know what comes naturally or easily not joy but despair distress, discouragement, right? Like when we're going through hard times, when the diagnosis isn't good, when the circumstances are getting worse, not better, when the pandemic is not showing signs of abating, joy isn't natural, despair is, distress, discouragement. Or when we're going through stressful times and we're on edge, a gentleness is not natural. No, we snap, snap at our kids, we snap at our spouses, we're insensitive, we speak without thinking through what we're saying, we're prone to be harsh or unkind, not gentle. And when we're walking through the middle of all kinds of unknowns, like peace is not natural, instead worry is, anxiety is. We worry about our families, whether or not we will get married, stay married, have kids, how those kids will turn out. We worry about finances. We worry about the future. And this is normal life. Then you add on a pandemic. We have anxieties right now. What is school going to look like? What is work going to look like? What is our economy going to do? You put all this together and joy. Peace and gentleness don't come naturally. There's a battle in each of our lives to know and experience, live in the joy and gentleness and peace that God is calling us to. So where does that battle begin? And the answer God is giving us today is the battle begins in your mind. Like the fight for joy, gentleness, and peace takes place between your ears. Look at the command in this verse. What is God telling us to do in order to rejoice and be gentle and experience otherworldly peace? He's telling us think about certain things. Like think stop and think what's going on between your ears. Like so many times we don't do this. We don't slow down and consider what we're thinking about. And as a result, so much of our thought life becomes filled with unhelpful things. And it's no wonder we're unhappy, or we're on edge, or we're down, or struggling in different ways. Because, so here's another truth to write down, and this truth, again, I would say, like these truths we're looking at are totally life transforming. And I wanna show you in God's word why that's not an overstatement. So here's this truth. So we just talked about how the battle for joy, gentleness, and peace in your life begins in your mind. Think about these things. Why is that so important? Because what you think determines how you live. Like what you think, what happens in between your ears determines what happens in your life. That's a bold statement. Let me back it up straight from scripture. Proverbs chapter 23, verse seven. Talking about a man says, as he thinks within himself, so is he. As he thinks within himself, so is he. Now that verse is actually translated in different ways in different translations. There's some debate about exactly all that it means. We won't dive into that in depth now, but let's just not stop there in scripture. So let's just ask across the Bible the question, how important are our thoughts to our lives? Well, Jesus said, Greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your what? With all your mind. So love God with the way you think. Then listen to these commands. Do not be conformed, Romans twelve two says to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians chapter four, verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians chapter three, verse two, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse five, take every thought captive to obey Christ. See the relationship between thinking and acting, your thought captive to obey Christ, which makes sense. Look at Romans chapter eight, verse five through six. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Do you see it? How do you get life and how do you get peace? You set your mind on the spirit. Like it's what's happening in your mind that leads to life and Peace. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, we have the mind of Christ, which is a major theme in this book of Philippians that we're walking through chapter four of. Remember what we've already seen from earlier in Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one Mind, one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now that begs the question, well whose mind do we have? The very next chapter says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same. Mind, having the same love being full accord of one mind, which mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and humility count others more significant than yourselves? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like that's the mind that we're called to. live with the mind of Christ. Which is why in chapter three, he's talking about people who have not trusted in Christ, who reject the mind of Christ. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory, their glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And then what we read just a minute ago in verse seven of Philippians chapter four, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, let me show you two other examples of this in scripture that are really important. And I I hope will connect some dots for all of us, connecting how the way we think determines how we live. So the first is Genesis chapter three. So this is the story of how sin, disobedience to God first entered the world. In Genesis chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Did you hear that? Where did sin first start in the world? It wasn't when they ate a piece of fruit, no. This started way back when the woman, after hearing the adversary say, you won't die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, and there's a ton we could talk about there, but you will be the determiner of who is, what is good and what is evil. Like it's up to you, not up to God. So the woman thinks about that, says, yeah, it does look good for food. It is appealing to me. It's to be desired to make me wise. So then she took of its fruit and ate. Like, do you see? Like, sin started in their minds and their actions followed. Don't miss this. Like, sin always starts in our minds. We think. Our way is better than God's way. We think our thoughts are wiser than God's thoughts. That's where sin begins. Or maybe, maybe we fail to even think about what God's way even is. And we act. So either we act without thinking about God's way or we act in deliberate disobedience to God's way. Either way, sin starts in our minds. What we think determines how we live. Which is why, so here's the other example. I mentioned Matthew 6 earlier when Jesus tells us not to be anxious. What is Jesus' remedy for anxiety? Listen to it, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 26. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, do you hear that? How do you not be anxious? Jesus says, here's how. Look at the birds. Think about the birds. Like faith here is thinking. Faith is stopping to think, wait a minute. Like God provides for Birds. And I'm more valuable than birds. So God will provide for me. Which means I don't have to worry. Don't miss it. Like According to God, thinking is the antidote to worry in this world. You're seeing the battle that takes place between our ears. Our mind is a battleground. And the adversary wants every single one of our minds to spiral in our thoughts, in all kinds of unhealthy ways. Like, will I get into this school? What will happen if I don't? What will happen if I do? What will I major in? Will that be the right major? Will it not be the right major? Will I ever get married? Will I ever have kids? How are my kids going to turn out? Will I get this job? Will I get this disease? Will I be healed of this disease? And these questions aren't even touching on thoughts of loneliness, isolation, abandonment, dejection, rejection. There's a way to halt the unhealth in our minds and our emotions and our lives. There's a way to live in joy and gentleness with peace that passes all understanding that totally transforms the way you live day to day, moment to moment, and the way you love the people around you. So what's the way? The way is to think about certain things. In other words, you and I have a choice. Like we have a choice in what we think about. Just like Jesus said, look at the birds. Like stop worrying and think differently from the way you're prone to think. Listen to this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a famous preacher from the past. He said, Christian faith is essentially thinking the problem with most people however is that they will not think and he said faith can be defined like this faith is insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock you down the trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling your own thought your thought is being controlled by something else and you go round and round in circles And what God is saying in his word to us today is don't do it, like stop and think. So here's a third truth, maybe a different way to to look at this. So don't miss this, maybe write this down. We don't always have a choice in our circumstances, but we do have a choice in our thoughts amidst those circumstances. But even then, we do have a choice in our thoughts amidst those circumstances. Now, I wanna clarify one really important thing, even as I say that. Because when I say that, I am speaking specifically to followers of Jesus. And the reason I wanna make that specific clarification is because it is Jesus who makes this truth a reality in our lives. So at this point, I wanna pause and say to those of you listening who are not followers of Jesus, who may not be followers of Jesus, like please listen closely. The Bible teaches that we have all turned from God and His ways to ourselves and our own ways. And in and of ourselves, this is the way the Bible describes our minds. Our minds are hard toward God and His word, 2 Corinthians three fourteen, even hostile to God. Romans 8, 7, our minds are focused on the things and the ways of this world, Romans chapter eight, verse five, to the point where we are actually enslaved to the ways of this world, like controlled in a sense by the ways of this world, Ephesians chapter two. And ultimately, the Bible teaches that if we die in this state, we will spend eternity experiencing God's just judgment due our sin. The good news of the Bible is that God loves us. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to pay the price for all of your sin against God. Jesus died on the cross to experience the just judgment of God for your sin and my sin. So that when we place our faith in Jesus, when we turn from our sin and ourselves and we trust in Jesus and God's love for us, God not only forgives us of our sin, as if that's not enough, God forgives us of our sin and then he gives us a new heart, a new mind, where we have supernatural power from his spirit to think in a way that is totally different from the way this world thinks. So this, by the way, is why the self-help power of positive thinking that people in this world promote is ultimately futile, and it's definitely not what we're talking about here. So self-help power of positive thinking basically says you can be a better version of yourself through just thinking positive thoughts about yourself and your circumstances, but that's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible doesn't call us to a better version of you. The Bible calls us to an entirely new you. Mark chapter eight, verse 34, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the Bible calls us to die to ourselves, like picking up a cross, experience an entirely new life in Jesus, following him, where we now have not a better version of our minds, but we now have the mind of Christ, like a totally different mind. And his mind, his Life that flows from his mind are available to all who trust in him, to trust in Jesus. So anybody else, I urge you today, put your trust in Jesus, in God's love for you. Let him totally transform your life from the inside out for all of eternity. And let that affect the way you live then every single day. So bring this home then for all who have the mind of Christ We are no longer a slave to the ways of thought in this world. We are not subject to, enslaved to worldly ways of thinking. Earlier I mentioned 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let me remind you the context of that verse. Look at verse 4. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And it says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you hear what this is saying? In this battle between our ears, all who are in Christ have spiritual weapons with supernatural power to destroy strongholds of thought and arguments and opinions and destructive patterns of thinking that go against God's word. Like Christian, you are not subject to them. You have power over them. To all who are in Christ, you have God-given, Christ-bought, spirit-empowered freedom to choose what you think in ways that bring total transformation in your life. Whatever you eat, however you exercise, whoever you think about in your work, in your play, in the news, social media, and all of it, fixate your mind on These things. And the list the Bible gives us is pretty comprehensive. Do you notice? He uses whatever six times. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then he says if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. So think about, ponder, consider, fixate your minds on whatever is and we'll just circle these right here whatever is true so we could start a whole other sermon with each of these we won't but suffice to say that if the battle for joy gentleness and peace in your life begins in your mind then that battle begins with believing what is true you will not have joy gentleness and peace in your life If you start with believing what is false about God, just ask Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world and destroyed their lives when they believed what was not true about God. And you will not experience joy, gentleness, and peace in your life if you don't believe what is true about you. Like fixate your mind on what God says about you. Not on what others think about you. Not on what you think others think about you. Fixate your mind on the truth of what God says about you. So much worry, anxiety, despair, distress is grounded in lies about who God is. Lies about who we are. Lies about other people around us. Lies that fill the world around us. God is telling us right now, like, fixate your mind on truth. This is why reading and meditating on God's word every day is vital. Because every day, every one of us is bombarded with millions of messages. And if God's word is not guiding our thoughts, we will inevitably be conformed to the pattern of this world. Inevitably. It is impossible to be transformed by the renewing of our minds if we're not fixating our minds on truth from God's word and truth in this world. Like, we're not gonna get into a discussion of fake news, but we all know it's a reality on news, social media, whether it's articles we read or posts we see that seem to picture people in the world in this way or that way, either negatively or positively in ways that are often not true. So just stop and ask, like, is this true? And ask that question through the filter of truth revealed in God's word. So much destruction happens between our ears by us believing that which is not true. And just ask the question, "Does does this thought come from God or not? Like that, just asking that, stopping and asking that question will be transformative in our lives. When we begin to replace lies in our minds with truth from God and his word, we'll begin to experience joy, gentleness, and peace that God's designed for us in this world. Fixate your minds on whatever is true or whatever is honorable. Oh, that's a great word. Some, some other translations say noble or dignified. The picture is basically think on a higher plane, like thoughts that are worthy of respect and honor and awe. Like so much of what we're prone to fixate our minds on in this world is on a lower plane. It's just frivolous and meaningless. And sometimes even dirty and vulgar. God says, lift your minds. Don't live down there in your minds. Lift your minds to higher thoughts, to that which evokes awe and dignity, to things that really matter. Like what matters most right now? And what matters most forever? Fixate your mind there. Think about those things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just—again, a whole other sermon here. Actually, many sermons. About a thousand people are over halfway through a class right now on justice and race. We've seen justice defined biblically as that which is right for all people, as exemplified in God's character and expressed in God's word. So we want to. Fixate our minds on what is just and right and good for people according to God, not according to our definition of right and good, according to God's definition of right and good. Fixate your mind on justice in these ways. Think, are these thoughts right, fair, impartial, just, for and about others? Fixate your mind on whatever, whatever is pure. What a great word. Just think pure motives, pure desires, pure words, pure truth, pure thoughts. This extends to so many facets of our thought life. Certainly sexual purity. Like, flee any and all sexual thought outside of marriage between you and your spouse. Fixate your mind on sexual purity, on Moral purity on purity and worship, on purity and work, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely oh just read that word and think about the way the Bible describes love in first Corinthians thirteen Think about ponder, fixate your minds on what is whatever is patient and kind and humble, not that which is envious or boastful or arrogant or rude or self-centered, irritable, resentful, have nothing to do with those thoughts. Fixate your mind on that which is lovely. Just ask, is the thought I'm having lovely? That's a question I don't think we often ask, that we really need to ask. And then whatever is commendable or admirable, think about this one this way. Would you commend a particular thought to someone else in a way that they would be edified, helped, encouraged by thinking that same thought you're having? Think about those kinds of things. Not the kinds of things that if someone else was in your mind, like they would be discouraged, maybe even disgusted by. No, fixate your mind on the things that if someone else was in your mind, they would be so encouraged. They would be so edified. They would be so helped to be thinking this way. Like think on things like that. If there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise. So this is what I love about this list. It's so comprehensive. Like you or I may be prone to think about justice, but not to think about purity. Or we we may be prone to to think about what we would say is lovely, but if it's not true, it's not lovely. Or we may be prone to think about what we deem just, but if it's not true, it's not just. But you put them all together, you have a picture of excellence. You have a picture of thoughts that are worthy of praise. And what what a phrase, are my thoughts worthy? of praise before God and before others. Like fixate your mind on those kinds of things, which requires the discipline to stop and think about what you're thinking about. Like this is an incredibly important spiritual discipline that affects every facet of our lives. And obviously we could turn this around and say, and don't think about the opposite of these things. Like, don't think about that which is untrue. Don't think about that which is dishonorable. Don't think about that which is unjust. Don't think about that which is impure, unlovely, or uncommendable. Choose to remove those thoughts from your mind. And this is what Martin lloyd Jones was saying. Like, Christian faith is thinking. It's choosing to remove those thoughts from our mind, replacing them with that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So that's how I wanna close. I want to give you a homework assignment. And obviously I realize and you realize you don't actually have to do this, but I want to encourage you to do this. Like if you want to experience joy, perpetual joy and unexplainable gentleness and surpassing peace in your life, then I wanna encourage you just to ask and answer these six questions, like spend some time today or sometime this week and just think through these questions. So they all start with this phrase, in what specific ways, so think in your life, what specific ways do I need to replace and let's just let the word do the work. What specific ways do I need to replace untrue thoughts with true thoughts? I just ask that question. And what specific ways do I need to replace? What are some things that I am prone to think that are not true? And how can I replace that which is true? What is true, what's not true in the way I'm thinking right now? Similarly, in what specific ways do I need to replace dishonorable thoughts with honorable thoughts? So how are my thoughts prone to go down here when God has called me to think on a higher plane? So what are some specific ways that I need to replace dishonorable thoughts with honorable thoughts? And these might have overlap between them, but just think about them through the categories God has given us in his word. Next, in what specific ways do I need to replace unjust thoughts with just thoughts? This journey that a thousand people have been walking through on Sunday nights—I know in my own heart, I trust in all of our hearts—like bring to the surface ways that we are prone toward partiality, toward prejudice, toward pride, toward injustice even in our own thoughts. So how do we replace unjust thoughts, thoughts that are not right and just with just thoughts? So that's the first three, and the last three, and what specific ways do I need to replace impure thoughts with pure thoughts? And just think, just take a catalog of your thought life and say, what is impure? Again, think sexual purity, moral purity, think your motives, your desires, your aims? Where are there impure thoughts that need to be replaced with pure thoughts? Where are there unlovely thoughts that need to be replaced with lovely thoughts? And just think, what would be categorized as unlovely in the way I think? And how can I replace that with lovely thoughts? And then the last question, what specific ways do I need to replace Uncommendable thoughts with commendable thoughts. Just, just picture somebody else stepping into your mind. What would be discouraging, even maybe disgusting? What would, what would lead someone to worry, anxiety, distress, and replace those uncommendable thoughts with that which if somebody was in your mind would be so good for them? Like if other people were thinking these thoughts, they would be edified, they would be built up, they would be encouraged, they'd be growing in their relationship with Christ. They'd be thriving in their relationship with Christ. Uncommendable thoughts with commendable thoughts. And I want to encourage us in asking these questions specifically to ask God to transform us by the renewing of our minds. That we might experience the joy and gentleness and peace that he's designed for us in Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? Oh God, I pray, we pray that you would transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, that you would take every thought captive in us to obey Christ this week. Help us, God, help us to replace Thoughts that are not of you, from you, glorifying you with thoughts that are of you and from you and glorifying you. And no matter what we're walking through right now, please, please, please transform our minds, our thoughts that we might experience the joy and gentleness and peace you've designed for us. Jesus, we praise you for making all these things possible. We praise you for the truth of your word. We praise you for the hope we have in you. We praise you for the joy and the peace and the gentleness that you make possible through what you did on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. We praise you that this joy and gentleness and peace are not just for now, but they are forever. That they are ours forever. All glory be to your name, Jesus transform our thoughts to be like your mind we pray in your name amen
4: change my heart oh god make it ever true change my heart oh god
2: The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and
1: Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999.
0: Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. I would like to start today with Psalm 99, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh, which means holy one, saint, sacred, exalted on a theophanic throne, separate from the common, profane, human infirmity, impurity, and sin, to set apart for a special purpose. So then, how is He calling us to live as children of the Holy One? 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. My beloved, how are you living a holy life and responding to the sins of profanity? We live in a world where our media, entertainment, and culture are constantly striving to convince our next generation that homosexuality and same-sex marriage should be an acceptable and alternative lifestyle. In fact, They even try to persuade our young people that they should be free to choose their own sexual orientation. This generation is facing a fierce spiritual battle, and the weapon the devil deploys against them is deception. So then, what is deception? The definition of the word deception in the Merriam-Webster dictionary is the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid, what is false or invalid, and the condition of being deceived. But Jesus is the truth. His Spirit will guide them into all truth as they discern and examine everything with His living Word. The Greek word for discern is tokimacho, which means to test, prove, and approve. It carries the idea of a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Beloved, let's ask God to bring moral revolution to this generation to walk in divine wisdom and true discernment. Holy, holy, holy are you, the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of your magnificent glory. Great and amazing are your works, Lord God. Right and true are your ways, King of all nations. You alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you. Father, bless this generation to walk in your wisdom so they may discern between good and evil truth and deception, holiness and profanity. Holy Spirit, you are the Spirit of truth. Please guide them into all truth. Give them biblical understanding of your original design of true sexuality and covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Lord, give them teachable hearts to learn from fathers and mothers of faith who will train their hearts to listen to your truth and teach them how to put your word into action. Deliver them from the ungodly influences of our media, entertainment, and culture that are constantly striving to convince this generation that homosexuality and same-sex marriage are an acceptable and alternative lifestyle. Give them an understanding mind and a hearing heart so they may discern the depravity and wickedness of this sin. Give them courageous faith to stop imitating the ideals and opinions of our culture, but be inwardly transformed by your Holy Spirit through a total reformation of their minds, perception, and understanding of your truth. Lead them to flee from youthful lusts, but pursue your righteousness, faith, love, and peace in fellowship with those believers who call upon you from a pure heart. Father, you are the Lord of heaven's hosts and invincible commander of all the armies of heaven. Please deliver this emerging generation from deception, sin's power, and sin's appeal. Fill them with a holy desire to prioritize Your Word as their highest standard of daily living and core values and as a moral compass in their lives. Fill them with holy desperation for Your presence so they will desire You more than anything else in this world. Father, bring a moral revolution to the next generation and raise them up as a company of radical lovers who will transform our culture by defining your original design of true sexuality, purity, and morality in our nation, and empower others to live lives of wholeness and freedom by the power of your Holy Spirit and divine truth. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.